Good morning. Please take your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 5. I'll figure out which ribbon that is. John chapter 5, where our text this morning is verses 19 to 30. John 5, 19 to 30. And I hope you've turned there, and I hope you'll follow along with me as we read from God's Word. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church, beginning in verse 19. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son of Man can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing, and greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears My word and believes Him who sent Me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming, it is now here, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son also to have life in Himself. And He has given Him authority to execute judgment, because He is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear His voice. And come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own, as I hear I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord given to us for our good. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word. Let's pray together. Father, we ask for illumination now from the Holy Spirit that we would understand the things of God that you have revealed to us in the scriptures and that we would understand them and believe them and obey them and apply them, Father, and find life in what you have spoken to us. Lord, many of us have come today with burdens on our hearts and minds, and so we would just ask, Father, now for these next brief moments, these 40 minutes or so, to be able to focus in on the scriptures and to remember again that Jesus gives life to his people. He gives them life through his word. Father, please keep me from error. Lord, please build this church in the truth. Please bear fruit here, God, by your word applied by your Holy Spirit, to the glory of Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Many of us this morning are probably familiar with C.S. Lewis's famous trilemma, where Lewis argues that there are only three options when it comes to considering Jesus Christ. Three options, hence the title trilemma. Who is Jesus? According to Lewis, he is either a liar, a lunatic, 
or he is the Lord. Lewis was not the first person to popularize that so-called, to use that trilemma, but he was the first person to popularize it. There's only three options when it comes to considering Jesus' identity. The power of Lewis's argument is the simplicity of his logic. There really are only three choices when it comes to Jesus. He is either a liar, he knew he wasn't the Son of God, but he pretended to be. Or he is a lunatic, he thought he was God even though he wasn't. Or, rightly, he is the Lord, the Son of God in human flesh. That's it when it comes to Jesus. Those, those are the options. The logic there is incredibly clear and powerful. But while that logic is clear, Christians must remember that our confession is rooted in more than logic. Amen? Our confession is rooted on the authority of God's word. We believe Jesus is Lord Because the Bible teaches that. And in the Bible, we hear Jesus, with his own words, compel us to confess his lordship. C.S. Lewis's trilemma is true. It has apologetic value. But friends, we stand on more than arguments. We employ more than logic. We stand on the confession of Jesus himself, given to us in the word of God. Our passage this morning in John 5 is a striking example of this biblical truth. You may remember from last week that Jesus has just healed a man on the Sabbath. And when charged with breaking the law, Jesus did not appeal to Scripture to defend himself. Jesus appealed to his relationship with God. My father is working, Jesus said, and so I am working. That's a profound claim from Jesus, and the Jewish religious leaders understood that. That's why they decided to kill Jesus, because he is making himself equal to God. And so as we begin our study of the passage today, perhaps the most basic observation is this. Jesus did not deny the charge of equality with God. He didn't deny it. He did not say, oh, no, I'm sorry, you misunderstood me. (laughs) That's not what I mean. He didn't do that at all. Instead, Jesus explains quite fully that he is absolutely equal with God, even to the point of doing what only God can do. That's astounding, friends. It's the most basic observation on this passage. The the religious leaders accuse Jesus of blasphemy, of making himself equal to God, and Jesus' response is to say, it's not blasphemy if I'm telling the truth. And so as we said just a moment ago, this is the bedrock of of our confession. We believe Jesus is Lord because Jesus himself declared it to be so. He confessed himself to be God. In that sense, John 5 is a wonderful reminder that as Christians, our hope is not rooted merely in logic or arguments as persuasive as those might be. Our hope is rooted in the very word of the living God, even the word made flesh. So our starting point this morning is that Jesus of Nazareth understood himself to be equal with God as God. That's our foundation And and from there, we're ready to set out in studying 
this passage. At its core, this is a Trinitarian passage. Verses 19 to 30 help us understand how Jesus relates to and works with God the Father. It's a Trinitarian text. But it's also a worshipful text. We're going to think this morning quite a bit about the nature of God. But in the end, our takeaway must be wonder and worship. As we learn how the Son and the Father work together, we ought to recognize how our salvation is tied up in their intra-Trinitarian relationship. So these are not abstract verses. These are intensely worshipful verses because our salvation is tied up in how the Son relates to and works with the Father. So in terms of an outline this morning, I want us to note just that three ways that Jesus, the Son, relates to and works with God the Father. These three ways revolve around three titles, the Son, the Word, and the Judge. Three ways that Jesus relates to and works with God the Father. Let's think about each one of those a bit more. We start in verses 19 to 20, where we see that Jesus is the humble and beloved Son. Jesus is the humble and beloved Son. Jesus has already claimed that He shares in the Father's work. And in verse 19, He explains that shared work more fully. Look at verse 19. Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of His own accord, but only what He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. There's a lot of theology packed into that one verse, but we could summarize it in a couple of points. To begin with, it's absolutely clear that the Son is equal to the Father. He's equal to the Father. Only God can see God. Remember John chapter 1, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. Only God can see God. So when Jesus says that the Son sees what the Father is doing, his point is that the Son is equal to the Father. They, they share in one divine nature, for only God can see God. What's more, only God can do God-like work. Again, notice Jesus' language. Whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. The Son's works are not at odds with God the Father, but in harmony with God the Father. In all of this, it is clear that the Son is equal to the Father. At the same time, it's equally clear that the Son is distinct from the Father. They are not the same person. As though God had different modes of operating. It's not as though God acts like the Father on Monday and then acts like the Son on Wednesday and then acts like the Spirit on Saturday. That's not how God works. That's actually a heresy. The Father and Son are distinct persons who exist in that eternal relationship. They are equal in the Godhead, but they are also distinct in the Godhead. So we can speak of the Father acting and the Son acting together. 
And in this distinction, the son displays remarkable humility. Humility before the father. Notice the order of things in verse 19. It's not that the father sees the son working and joins the son. It's the other way around. The son sees the father and joins in those works. So while the son is equal to the father, he is also humble before the father. The son submits to the father's will. Now, there is a massive discussion at this point as to how far into eternity the son's submission to the father extends. Has the son always submitted to the father from all eternity? Or does the son only submit to the father in his incarnation during the earthly life and ministry of Jesus? That's an enormous discussion. And we can't get to the bottom of it today. But what we can be clear on is the nature of the son's humility. This is key, I think, for this text. When we hear words like humility and submission, we tend to think in servile terms. As though the father were like a master and the son were like a servant and somehow lesser than him. We tend to think in those Servile terms. But that's not at all how the Son relates to the Father. Not at all. In fact, Jesus goes on in verse 20 to ground His humility in the Father's love. Notice again verse 20. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all that He Himself is doing. And greater works than these will He show Him so that you may marvel. Friends, the connection between verse 19 and verse 20 is astounding. Love ties the Father and Son together. Love. Because the Father loves the Son, He shows the Son all that He is doing, and the Son returns that love by humbly doing what the Father does. At its core then, the relationship between God the Father and God the Son is not defined in servile terms, but by love. The Father loves the Son by showing Him His works, and the Son returns that love by doing those works. And in this, the nature of God is revealed. And that nature is revealed in love. We're coming up on Good Friday and, and Resurrection Sunday. Historically, the church has referred to the week between Palm Sunday and Resurrection Sunday as Holy Week. It's a bit of a misnomer because every week is holy as we live before the face of God. But just historically, that's what we've called that week. What's happening? What is happening at the end of Holy Week as the sun goes to the cross? What, what are we witnessing in the agony of Calvary. We witness the love of God. Not just the love of God for us, but the love of God within himself. And in this love, friends, in that love of God in himself, we are saved. We find our salvation 
in that love of God within himself. Part of what makes the gospel good news is God's commitment to himself. The father is committed to love his son. And the son is committed to love his father. And in that love of God between father and son, we are saved. The father loves his son and says, my will for you is to go to the cross. And the son loves his father and says, my obedience to you is to go to that cross. And in that conjunction of love, sinners like us are redeemed. It's amazing. And since this love between the father and the son cannot fail, the father will always love the son and the son will always love his father. Since the love of God within himself cannot fail, so also the outworking of that love, our salvation, cannot fail. Christ will keep you to the very last day because he loves his father eternally. It's amazing. So we might be tempted to read verses 19 and 20 as some kind of abstract, theoretical, esoteric musing on the nature of God. But friends, it is anything but. It is anything but abstract. This is central to our hope. That Jesus is the humble and beloved Son of the Father. You'll notice at the end of verse 20 that Jesus speaks of greater things. You see it there at the end of the verse? The healing on the Sabbath was remarkable, but the Father will show the Son greater things. What are these greater things? The rest of the passage answers that question. And the second way that Jesus works with the Father begins that answer. This is the second way that Jesus relates to his Father. Jesus is the living and life-giving Word. There's a difference there. Jesus is the living and life-giving Word. In verse 21, Jesus again affirms his fundamental equality with God. But now this equality is seen in giving life. Notice verse 21. For as the Father raises the dead... And gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. The point here is that the authority of God is inherent in Jesus' will. Since God alone is the Creator, then God alone has the power over life and death. And this power, Jesus says, is inherent in His will. He gives life to whomever He will, for He is God. How does the Son carry out this greater work? How does the Son give life to whomever He will? Look at verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in Him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. How does the Son give life? Through His word, Jesus says. Through His word. The Son speaks the Word of God, for He is the Word of God, and those who hear His Word with faith are brought to life. I want to stress here the significance of faith in Christ's Word. Sometimes 
we mistakenly think of faith as merely assenting to facts. And while faith is never less than assenting to biblical facts, it is always more than mental assent. Many people today believe that Jesus lived historically and they do not trust him. So faith is never less than mentally assenting, but it's always more than. Fundamentally, to believe Jesus' word is to believe that he is the Father's Son, sent into the world to reveal God and to reconcile sinners. To believe Jesus' word is to affirm that when you hear him speak, you hear God speak. It's more than mental assent. It's to confess your allegiance to the one who is speaking. And this is why Jesus' word received by faith leads to eternal life. You see it there in the verse. Because faith unites the believer to the Son who reveals the Father. Remember in John's gospel, eternal life is knowing God. John 17, 3, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. In that sense, in verse 24, eternal life is more than unending existence. It is the life-giving knowledge of God received by faith in Jesus. So let's summarize the last few minutes because we just went a lot of places in like three paragraphs. So let's, let's summarize here. Verse 21, as the Son of God, Jesus has the authority to give life. Verse 24, his authority is manifested in his word. Those who believe pass from judgment into eternal life. Now, there's a question here that we have to answer. If life comes through the Son's word, then how in the world can sinners hear and believe that word? This is no small question. Remember, the Bible says that every person comes into this world dead in their sin. And not to put it too bluntly, but dead people can't hear. So doesn't this make salvation impossible? Since salvation comes through hearing the word of Christ? This is no small question. Notice how Jesus answers verse 25. Truly, truly, I say to you, and hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. In a way, verse 25 sounds nonsensical. Dead people don't hear. And that is precisely Jesus' point. His voice gives life to the dead. The voice of Jesus expressed in his word creates the very thing that it calls for. If you know John's gospel, then you can't help but think ahead to chapter 11 when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. That moment is a picture of verse 25. Jesus stands outside of a dead man's tomb and Jesus cries out, Live! 
It appears nonsensical. And in that moment, as the word of Jesus runs up against the lifeless body of Lazarus, life happens. The word of Jesus has the power to create the very thing that it calls for. We could even say it more strongly than that. The word of Jesus calls into existence that which was not. Even spiritual life in the hearts of people who were dead in their sins. So every Christian walking the earth today is a living testimony of the power of Jesus' word. We live because Christ called us to life. The word of Jesus calls into existence things that were not. If you're a believer, in some sense, this is your testimony. We live because Christ stood outside of the tomb of our dead hearts and with divine authority, Jesus commanded us to live. And we live in Him. How can Jesus do this? (laughs) How can He call into existence that which was not? Notice verse 26. For as the Father has life in Himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. Because the Son has life, he is able to call the dead to life. This is a work that only God can do. God's existence, his life, depends on nothing. God lives because he is God. So just as God called life into existence at creation, so also Jesus calls life into existence in his new creation. He has life in himself and therefore when he speaks, the dead live. This is how the son relates to the father. He is the living and therefore life-giving word of God. Before we move on, we should pause here and ask the so what question. We see the doctrine being worked out in these verses. But what difference does that doctrine make for how we live today? That's what I mean when I say so what. What's what's the value? What's the takeaway? I see at least two takeaways from this. The first is confidence To face the final day. If you look back at verse 24, you'll notice that Jesus speaks in the past tense. Those who believe his word have passed from death to life, they live now. Believers enjoy spiritual life now in the present, and we have confidence that we will enter eternal life on the last day. Friends, that that end times confidence is a direct result of the power of Jesus' word. Think about it. My spiritual life as a Christian is not self-created. Praise God. It's not self-created. I live because Jesus, through his word, brought me to life. Can Jesus' word ever fail? Never. Absolutely not. As the word of God, all that Jesus commands will come to pass. And therefore, the life that he created in me through his word will not fail to be completed. That's a long way of saying, on the last day, he will save you. 
having been brought to life with Christ, the believer will never die in the ultimate sense. Yes, we face physical death, but that physical death is only passing beyond the veil, entering into the eternal life that is already ours in Christ Jesus. So do you see the confidence that this creates for a Christian? There are many things that may trouble our souls. You may have brought many things with you today that are troubling you. There are many things that may trouble our souls. But the one thing we do not fear is the end. I don't say that lightly. The one thing we do not fear is the end. Because the one thing we know for sure is this. That Christ's word cannot fail. Having brought us to life, he will bring us into life forever. Confidence, then, is the first takeaway from Jesus as the living and life-giving word. Confidence. The second takeaway is that we ought to stake everything on the word of Christ given to us in the scriptures. We ought to stake everything on the word of Christ given to us in the scriptures. This is why churches must preach the scriptures in season and out of season. Because Christ gives life through his word. This is why Christians must regularly read and meditate on God's word. Because Christ gives life through that word. This is why missionaries build their witness on the Bible because Christ calls the dead, even the dead of unreached people groups halfway around the world, Christ calls the dead to life through His Word. We stake everything on the Word of Christ because we believe that His Word gives life. I hope that we make the connection here today between the power of Jesus' Word and what we're doing right now sitting in this room. Having a word-driven, scripture-saturated church is not simply a strategy for church growth. It's so much more than a strategy. It's the way that we confess our faith in the triune God. It's the way that we avail ourselves of the power of God manifested in His Son. We stake everything on the word of Christ because we believe that the Son is the living and life-giving word. What a feast it is to think God's thoughts after him. Amen? I love the Bible. We have one more, one more connection to note. This is the final way that Jesus relates to and works with the Father. Number three. Jesus is the sovereign and just judge. Jesus is the sovereign and just judge. We've already seen one of the greater works from verse 20, the Son's power to give life. The other greater work is described now in verse 22. Notice what Jesus says. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. So the Son working in harmony with the Father, is the judge of all the earth. We, we might say that this is the other side of the coin to Jesus' power to give life. If you have the power to give life, you also have the power 
to take life, to execute judgment. So Jesus is the judge of all the earth, and in giving life and executing judgment, he reveals himself to be the Lord, God. That note of lordship is clearly present in verse 27. Look at verse 27. Jesus is still speaking of his role as judge, and he adds another element, verse 27. And the Father has given him, that is the Son, authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Earlier, Jesus referred to himself as the Son of God in verse 25. Now, he refers to himself as the Son of Man. What's the difference and where does that title come from? Where does Jesus get Son of Man? Well, it comes from the Old Testament, from Daniel chapter 7. Here's the background. In Daniel chapter 7, the prophet sees one like a son of man approaching the throne of God, the ancient of days, like we sang earlier. The prophet sees one like a son of man approaching the ancient of days. And in this stunning moment, the ancient of days, God, gives this son of man authority to rule. He gives him a kingdom that will never fail. And all the peoples of the earth will come and worship and bow down before and receive the judgment of this one like a son of man. Daniel chapter 7. That's why Jesus uses the title here in John chapter 5. Because it captures his role as the God-appointed judge and ruler of all the earth. So notice how those two titles, Son of God and Son of Man, are coming together in Jesus' self-understanding. This is, there's a lot of fruitful study that we could do right here, but we'll just be content with a summary. As the Son of God, Jesus gives life, bringing people into His kingdom. And as the Son of Man, Jesus executes judgment, establishing that kingdom forever in perfect justice. He gives life, he is the son of God, he executes judgment, he is the son of man. And in both of those ways, Jesus is revealing himself to be both Christ and Lord. There's more that we need to learn about Christ's role as judge. When we think about judgment, we might conclude that the sole purpose is to reward righteousness and punish evil. And that's not a wrong conclusion. At the final day, Christ will judge all, and in doing so, Christ will set things to rights. And yet, in John 5, Jesus gives another purpose for his role as judge. Look at verse 23. The Father has given all judgment to the Son that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. So, what is the purpose of Christ's judgment? Answer, the exaltation of God's name. 
Why is Christ the judge? So that all will honor the Son just as they honor the Father. The Father has given judgment to the Son so that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the great final purpose of Jesus' role as the judge. It's the glory of God, the exaltation of God, the magnification of who God is in His Son. And in this work, the judgment of Christ is final. Please don't miss the note of finality in verse 23. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father. It's it's final. A person's spiritual state is determined by how one responds to Christ. In the outworking of eternity, Jesus' verdict is is final. There is no court of appeals. There is no higher power that can overturn Christ's word. In the scope of eternity, the judgment of Christ is the final word. And that note of finality is where the passage ends. Where will Jesus' judgment be seen finally and fully? At the resurrection of the dead. Look at verse 28. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Jesus has the final day in view. We know that because he says the hour is coming. It's future, in other words. He's thinking about the last day. And at that future final day, Jesus' authoritative voice will call every person to account. This is clear biblical affirmation that every person will be raised to face the final judgment. Physical death is not the end. The judgment of Christ is the end and His judgment is just. That's the emphasis in verse 29. Jesus' judgment is just. It's right. Those who have done good receive life, and those who have done evil receive judgment. Jesus' judgment corresponds to the nature of each person's life. His judgment is just. Now, does this mean that eternity is determined By a person's deeds? Is Jesus teaching salvation by works in verse 29? Absolutely not. The whole thrust of Scripture is that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And since Scripture interprets Scripture, we know that Jesus is not teaching salvation by works. Rather, Verse 29 teaches that salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, produces good works in a person's life. When God regenerates a person, He gives that person a new heart, a new nature. And that new nature evidences itself in good works done in faith. Those works are not the cause of of one's new nature. They are the fruit of the new nature God has created by grace. How do you know an apple tree when you look at it? Because it bears apples. Do the apples make it an apple tree? No, its roots do. 
In the same way, God creates life in his people and they produce good works as the evidence that God has brought them to life. And so we can envision what the final day looks like with as much reverential imagination as we can muster. We can envision that last day when each person stands before Jesus, the judge of all the earth. The Christian stands before Jesus and Jesus as the judge declares that that person will enter life. How does humanity, who are observing the judgment of Christ, how does humanity know that Jesus' judgment is just? Because the believer's life evidences the fruit of God's redemptive work. This is key. Our good works are not the foundation of our salvation. We are not declared righteous based on anything we have done. Rather, our good works result in praise and glory to God because our good works reveal the power of God's grace and therefore the justice of Christ's judgment. Overall, we would be remiss if we did not recognize what verse 29 is teaching that every person will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Think about that. Every person in this room, every person in this building, every person will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And at that final judgment, Jesus' verdict is ultimate. There is no appeal. If you don't know Jesus Christ today, if you're not a Christian, verse 29 is God's mercy to you. God is telling you ahead of time what is going to come. You will stand before Jesus and you will be accountable to him. You might say in your heart, I don't believe in Jesus. I don't believe that he's God. It doesn't matter, friend. You will stand before Christ and you will be accountable to him. And so today, if you do not know Jesus, his word is calling you to trust him. The way that you prepare for the final day is by turning from sin. That's what the Bible calls repentance. And trusting in Jesus' death and resurrection to save you. The final day, the judgment seat of Christ is coming. It is more certain than tomorrow's sunrise. And that means today is the day that you respond to Jesus. Today is the day that you recognize His voice is is calling now. It's working by His Spirit to give life to the dead. If you don't know the Lord today, verse 29 is mercy to you, friend. He's calling you to trust Him and to receive life and to be saved from the penalty of your sin. Won't you do that? Believe Him. As we close, I want to focus again on the humility of Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God. Let's end with verse 30. As we read this verse, remember that Jesus is the Word made flesh. He is the image of the invisible God. He upholds the universe by the word of His power, and all creation belongs to Him. Now, hear what this exalted Jesus says, verse 30. I can do nothing on my own. 
As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Again, our salvation is tied up in that verse. Jesus does not insist on his own glorious position. Rather, the Son of God humbled himself, took on flesh, and became obedient to his Father's will, obedient even to the point of death. All of his judgments are just because the Son is humble enough to seek the Father's will, not his own. And the Father's will was for his Son to take on human flesh, walk the road of humility all the way to the cross, where the Son of God, who is also the Son of Man, shed his blood for the forgiveness of sins. Our salvation, brothers and sisters, does not rest on all the things we have done right. We have no righteous deeds. Our salvation does not rest on our goodness. By nature, we are far from good. Our salvation rests on the humble obedience of God's beloved Son, Jesus Christ, who says, I came not to do my own will, but the will of a Father who loved me. And in that humility, we are saved. He gives life to whomever he will, even to sinners like us. And so may we honor him. May we honor him with lives of godliness that result in praise and honor to God, both today and on the last day. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the obedience and humility and power and authority of Jesus Christ. We thank you that his word gives life, that his word gives life to sinners, even sinners like us. We pray, Father, that we would respond to him now with humble obedience and dependence upon the Holy Spirit so that the fruit of godliness would be born in us all to the praise of your glorious grace. We ask this in Jesus' name.